far from playing the role of Good Samaritan. The fund does not even follow the timeless human tradition established more than 4,000 years ago by Hammurabi in ancient Babylon of forgiving interest after natural disasters. In 1985, a devastating earthquake hit Mexico City, killing more than 5,000 people and causing $5 billion of damage. Fund staff who claim to be saviors, helping to end poverty and save countries in crisis, arrived a few days later, demanding to be repaid. The Best in Bitcoin Made Audible I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to the show. This is Bitcoin Audible, the best in Bitcoin made audible. And we are reading an exceptional piece by Alex Gladstein, which I've had very limited recording time, so it's been very slow getting through, and I'm sorry for that. But we've got part three today. Um, And because my time is so limited, I'm going to try not to waste any of it. So we're going to dive right in. If you haven't listened to part one and two, this is going to be very confusing because we are in the middle of a very lengthy and very in-depth piece on the IMF and the World Bank and basically how they have used their monetary privilege and their ability to finance, to create debt out of thin air to, to essentially colonize poor countries all over the planet in the name Uh, and basically strip them of all of their natural resources and suffocate all of the independence of their economy to make them dependent on essentially the Western rich nations for their infrastructure and their food security. Uh, And Gladstein breaks it all down. Um, So uh, real quick, I just want to thank our sponsors before we jump into part three here. You know them. You love them. It's Swan Bitcoin. The best, if you are trying to get into Bitcoin, please just stop going. Don't search it online. Don't go to Bitcoin.com. Don't go to crypto. Don't go to Coinbase. Skip all of that crap. Swan Bitcoin has everything you need. They are the onboarding experience, and they are all signal and no noise. You will not find a better place. SwanBitcoin.com slash guy is my special link. Then you're going to check out Fold. You can check out the Fold card because you're going to get sat back on everything in your life. So the... The base, like the more expensive version, if you just get it by month, is $10 a month for this card. And on one purchase, I got 25 bucks in sats back. In fact, somebody who listens to the show actually shared that they got $100 back on one of their bills. And uh, Ken uh, is his name, and he was nice enough to uh, donate $100,000 to Rad's wallet, which I've had a number of people who have contributed to that to you know rad's stash so thank you ken Uh, that means a lot rad was very very pleased and then lastly when you get those sats how are you going to keep them safe you're going to get a cold card you're going to get one of the numerous hardware security devices this is the simplest and best thing that you can do for your security and to know that you own your bitcoin go to guyswan.com slash cold card and check them out. 10% discount with my code, Bitcoin Audible. All right. Merry almost Christmas, guys. Let's go ahead and dive into the third part 
of Alex Gladstein's incredible piece on the IMF and World Bank, beginning on the section titled, Part 7, Creating Agricultural Dependence. The idea that developing countries should feed themselves is an anachronism from a bygone era. They could better ensure their food security by relying on the U.S. agricultural products, which are available in most cases at lower cost. Former U.S. Secretary of Agriculture, John Block As a result of bank and fund policy, all across Latin America, Africa, the Middle East, and South and East Asia, countries which once grew their own food now import it from rich countries. Growing one's own food is important in retrospect because in the post-1944 financial system, commodities are not priced with one's local fiat currency. They are priced in the dollar. Consider the price of wheat, which ranged between $200 and $300 between 1996 and 2006. It has since skyrocketed, peaking at nearly $1,100 in 2021. If your country grew its own wheat, it could weather the storm. If your country had to import wheat, your population risked starvation. This is one reason why countries like Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Egypt, Ghana, and Bangladesh are all currently turning to the IMF for emergency loans. Historically, where the bank did give loans, they were mostly for modern, large-scale, monocrop agriculture and for resource extraction, not for the development of local industry, manufacturing, or consumption farming. Borrowers were encouraged to focus on raw materials exports, oil, minerals, coffee, cocoa, palm oil, tea, rubber, cotton, etc., and then pushed to import finished goods, foodstuffs, and the ingredients for modern agriculture like fertilizer, pesticides, tractors, and irrigation machinery. The result is that societies like Morocco end up importing wheat and soybean oil instead of thriving on native couscous and olive oil, fixed to become dependent. Earnings were typically used not to benefit farmers, but to service foreign debt, purchase weapons, import luxury goods, fill Swiss bank accounts, and put down dissent. Consider some of the world's poorest countries. As of 2020, after 50 years of bank and fund policy, Niger's exports were 75% uranium, Mali's 72% gold, Zambia's 70% copper, Burundi's 69% coffee, Malawi's 55% tobacco, Togo's 50% cotton, and on it goes. At times in past decades, these single exports supported virtually all of these countries' hard currency earnings. This is not a natural state of affairs. These items are not mined or produced for local consumption, but for French nuclear plants, Chinese electronics, German supermarkets, British cigarette makers, and American clothing companies. In other words, the energy of the labor force of these nations has been engineered toward feeding and powering other civilizations instead of nourishing and advancing their own. Researcher Alicia Corin wrote about the typical agricultural impact of bank policy in Costa Rica, where the country's, quote, Structural adjustment called for earning more hard currency to pay off foreign debt, forcing farmers who traditionally grew beans, rice, and corn for domestic consumption to plant non-traditional agricultural exports, such as ornamental plants, flowers, melons, strawberries, and red peppers, 
industries that exported their products were eligible for tariff and tax exemptions not available to domestic producers. Meanwhile, Corin wrote, structural adjustment agreements removed support for domestic production. While the North pressured southern nations to eliminate subsidies and barriers to trade, northern governments pumped billions of dollars into their own agricultural sectors, making it impossible for basic grains growers in the South to compete with the North's highly subsidized agricultural industry. Corin extrapolated her Costa Rica analysis to make a broader point. Structural adjustment agreements shift public spending subsidies from basic supplies consumed mainly by the poor and middle classes to luxury export crops produced for affluent foreigners. Third world countries were not seen as body politics, but as companies that needed to increase revenues and decrease expenditures. The testimony of a former Jamaican official is especially telling. We told the World Bank team that farmers could hardly afford credit and that higher taxes would put them out of business. The bank told us in response that this means the market is telling you that agriculture is not the way to go for Jamaica. They are saying we should give up farming altogether. The World Bank and IMF, the official said, don't have to worry about the farmers and local companies going out of business or starvation wages or the social upheaval that will result. They simply assume that it is our job to keep our national security forces strong enough to suppress any uprising. Developing governments are stuck. Faced with insurmountable debt, the only factor they really control in terms of increasing revenue is deflating wages. If they do this, they must provide basic food subsidies, or else they will be overthrown. And so, the debt grows. Even when developing countries try to produce their own food, they are crowded out by a centrally planned global trade market. For example, one would think that the cheap labor in a place like West Africa would make it a better exporter of peanuts than the United States. But since northern countries pay an estimated $1 billion in subsidies to their agriculture industries every single day, southern countries often struggle to be competitive. What's worse, 50 or 60 countries are often directed to focus on the very same crops, crowding each other out in the global marketplace. Rubber, palm oil, coffee, tea, and cotton are bank favorites, as the poor masses can't eat them. It is true that the Green Revolution has created more food for the planet, especially in China and East Asia. But despite advances in agricultural technology, much of these new yields go to exports, and vast swaths of the world remain chronically malnourished and dependent. To this day, for example, African nations import about 85% of their food. They pay more than $40 billion per year, a number estimated to reach $110 billion per year by 2025, to buy from other parts of the world what they could grow themselves. Bank and fund policy helped transform a continent of incredible agricultural riches into one reliant on the outside world to feed its people. Reflecting on the results of this policy of dependency, Hancock challenges the widespread belief that the people of the third world are, quote, fundamentally helpless. Victims of nameless crises, disasters, and catastrophes, he writes, suffer from a perception that they can do nothing unless we, the rich and powerful, intervene to save them from themselves. But as evidenced by the fact that our assistance has only made them more dependent on us, 
Hancock rightfully unmasks the notion that only we can save them as patronizing and profoundly fallacious. Far from playing the role of Good Samaritan, the fund does not even follow the timeless human tradition established more than 4,000 years ago by Hammurabi in ancient Babylon of forgiving interest after natural disasters. In 1985, a devastating earthquake hit Mexico City, killing more than 5,000 people and causing $5 billion of damage. Fund staff, who claim to be saviors, helping to end poverty and save countries in crisis, arrived a few days later, demanding to be repaid. Part 8. You Can't Eat Cotton Development prefers crops that can't be eaten so the loans can be collected. Cheryl Payer The Togolese democracy advocate Farida Noborema's own personal and family experience tragically matches the big picture of the bank and fund laid out thus far. The way she puts it, after the 1970s oil boom, loans were poured into developing nations like Togo, whose unaccountable rulers didn't think twice about how they would repay the debt. Much of the money went into giant infrastructure projects that didn't help the majority of the people. Much was embezzled and spent on pharaonic estates. Most of these countries, she says, were ruled by single-party states or families. Once interest rates started to hike, these governments could no longer pay their debts. The IMF started taking over by imposing austerity measures. These were new states that were very fragile, Noborama says in an interview for this article. They needed to invest strongly in social infrastructure, just as the European states were allowed to do after World War II. But instead, we went from free healthcare and education one day to situations the next where it became too costly for the average person to get even basic medicine. Regardless of what one thinks about state-subsidized medicine and schooling, eliminating it overnight was traumatic for poor countries. Bank and fund officials, of course, have their own private healthcare solutions for their visits and their own private schools for their children whenever they have to live in the field. Because of the forced cuts in public spending, Nabarema says, the state hospitals in Togo remain to this day in complete decay. Unlike the state-run, taxpayer-financed public hospitals in the capitals of former colonial powers in London and Paris, things are so bad in Togo's capital, Lomé, that even water has to be prescribed. There was also, Nabarema said, reckless privatization of our public companies, she explained how her father used to work at Togolese Steel Agency. During privatization, the company was sold off to foreign actors for less than half of what the state built it for. It was basically a garage sale, she said. Nabarema says that a free market system and liberal reforms work well when all participants are on an even playing field. But that is not the case in Togo, which is forced to play by different rules. No matter how much it opens up, it can't change the strict policies of the U.S. and Europe, who aggressively subsidize their own industries and agriculture. Nabarema mentions how a subsidized influx of cheap used clothes from America, for example, ruined Togo's local textile industry. These clothes from the West, she said, put entrepreneurs out of business and littered our beaches. 
The most horrible aspect, she said, is that the farmers, who made up 60% of the population in Togo in the 1980s, had their livelihoods turned upside down. The dictatorship needed hard currency to pay its debts, and could only do this by selling exports. So they began a massive campaign to sell cash crops. With the World Bank's help, the regime invested heavily in cotton, so much so that it now dominates 50% of the country's exports, destroying national food security. In the formative years for countries like Togo, the bank was, quote, the largest single lender for agriculture. Its strategy for fighting poverty was agricultural modernization. Quote, massive transfers of capital in the form of fertilizers, pesticides, earth-moving equipment, and expensive foreign consultants. Nabarema's father was the one who revealed to her how imported fertilizers and tractors were diverted away from farmers growing consumption food to farmers growing cash crops like cotton, coffee, cocoa, and cashews. If someone was growing corn, sorghum, or millet, the basic foodstuffs of the population, they didn't get access. You can't eat cotton, Nabarema reminds us. Over time, the political elite in countries like Togo and Benin, where the dictator was literally a cotton mogul, became the buyer of all the cash crops from all of the farms. They'd have a monopoly on purchases, Nabarema says, and would buy the crops for prices so low that the peasants would barely make any money. This entire system, called Sotoko in Togo, was based on funding provided by the World Bank. When farmers would protest, she said, they would get beaten or their farms would get burned to rubble. They could have just grown normal food and fed their families like they had done for generations, but now they could not even afford the land. The political elite was even acquiring land at an outrageous rate, often through illegal means and jacking up the price. As an example, Nabarema explains how the Togolese regime might seize 2,000 acres of land, unlike in a liberal democracy, like the one in France which has built its civilization off the backs of countries like Togo, the judicial system is owned by the government, so there is no way to push back. So farmers, who used to be self-sovereign, are now forced to work as laborers on someone else's land to provide cotton to rich countries far away. The most tragic irony, Nabarema says, is that cotton is overwhelmingly grown in the north of Togo, in the poorest part of the country. But when you go there, she says, you see it has made no one rich. Women bear the brunt of structural adjustment. The misogyny of the policy is, quote, quite clear in Africa, where women are the major farmers and providers of fuel, wood, and water, Danaher writes, and yet a recent retrospective says, the World Bank prefers to blame them for having too many children rather than re-examining its own policies. As Payer writes, for many of the world's poor, they are poor not because they have been left behind or ignored by their country's progress, but because they are the victims of modernization. Most have been crowded off the good farmland or deprived of land altogether by rich elites and local or foreign agribusiness. Their destitution has not ruled them out of the development process, the development process has been the cause of their destitution. Yet the bank, Payer says, is still determined to transform the agricultural practices of small farmers. Bank policy statements make it clear that the real aim is integration of peasant land into the commercial sector 
through the production of a marketable surplus of cash crops. Payer observed how, in the 1970s and 1980s, many small plotters still grew the bulk of their own food needs and were not, quote, dependent on the market for the near totality of their sustenance, as modern people were. These people, however, were the target of the bank's policies, which transformed them into surplus producers and, quote, often enforced this transformation with authoritarian methods. In a testimony in front of U.S. Congress in the 1990s, George Ayati remarked that if Africa were able to feed itself, it could save nearly $15 billion it wastes on food imports. This figure may be compared with the $17 billion Africa received in foreign aid from all sources in 1997. In other words, if Africa grew its own food, it wouldn't need foreign aid. But if it were to happen, then poor countries wouldn't be buying billions of dollars of food per year from rich countries, whose economies would shrink as a result. So the West strongly resists any change. Part 9. The Development Set Let's pause for just a moment and appreciate Swan Bitcoin. Appreciate the company that has been pumping out pure signal about Bitcoin. Incredible analysis. Um, one of the best conferences in the space, Pacific Bitcoin. And for their first conference, they absolutely blew it out of the water. It was, was a wonderful conference. I had an absolute blast. And they are the onboarding service. They are the way to get into Bitcoin. Understand, you're going to Google search and you're going to get Coinbase because they're the loudest, they're the most obnoxious, and they are going to shove unbelievable mountains of garbage tokens, shit coins down your throat. Please do not go to a terrible exchange that is just trying to figure out how much different crap they can sell you to get your fees. Swan Bitcoin is Bitcoin only. They are pure signal and no noise, and they are here to build a long-term relationship. They are not they are not going to they're going to tell you not to trade. They're going to explain why trading is a terrible idea and it is just going to be throwing away money both on tons of fees for no reason, taxes for no reason, and you're going to lose money to boot. Their setup could not be simpler. An automatic savings plan. I have been using it since they started it. And every single week it buys Bitcoin and it sends it to my cold card. It sends it to my cold storage. It does it automatically. It does it while I am sitting here recording. Swan Bitcoin is a no-brainer. And they have so many different things to offer, as well as one of the best resources out there for just learning and understanding and figuring out what's going on in this space. Go to swanbitcoin.com guy. That's my special link. And you can get everything that you need. You can find it right there in the description. So let's jump back in. Part 9. The Development Set. Excuse me, friends, I must catch my jet. I'm off to join the development set. My bags are packed and I've had all my shots. I have traveler's checks and pills for the trots. The development set is bright and noble. Our thoughts are deep and our vision global. Although we move with the better classes, our thoughts are always with the masses. In Sheraton hotels, in scattered nations, we damn multinational corporations. Injustice seems easy to protest in such seething hotbeds of social rest. We discuss malnutrition over steaks and plan hunger talks during coffee breaks. Whether Asian floods or African drought, 
we face each issue with open mouth. And so begins The Development Set, a 1976 poem by Ross Coggins that hits at the heart of the paternalistic and unaccountable nature of the bank and the fund. The World Bank pays high, tax-free salaries with very generous benefits. IMF staff are paid even better, and traditionally were flown first or business class, depending on the distance, never economy. They stayed in five-star hotels and even had a perk to get free upgrades onto the supersonic Concorde. Their salaries, unlike wages made by people living under structural adjustment, were not capped and always rose faster than the inflation rate. Until the mid-1990s, the janitors cleaning the World Bank headquarters in Washington, mostly immigrants who fled from countries that the bank and fund had adjusted, were not even allowed to unionize. In contrast, Christine Lagarde's tax-free salary as head of the IMF was $467,940, plus an additional $83,760 allowance. Of course, during her term from 2011 to 2019, she oversaw a variety of structural adjustments on poor countries, where taxes on the most vulnerable were almost always raised. Graham Hancock notes that redundancy payments at the World Bank in the 1980s, quote, average a quarter of a million dollars per person. When 700 executives lost their jobs in 1987, the money spent on their golden parachutes, $175 million, would have been enough, he notes, quote, to pay for a complete elementary school education for 63,000 children from poor families in Latin America or Africa. According to former World Bank head James Wolfenson, from 1995 to 2005, there were more than 63,000 bank projects in developing countries. The cost of feasibility studies and travel and lodging for experts from industrialized countries alone absorbed as much as 25% of the total aid. Fifty years after the creation of the bank and fund, quote, 90% of the $12 billion per year in technical assistance was still spent on foreign expertise. That year in 1994, George Ayate noted that 80,000 bank consultants worked on Africa alone, but that, quote, less than 0.01% were Africans. Hancock writes that, quote, the bank, which puts more money into more schemes in more developing countries than any other institution, claims that it seeks to meet the needs of the poorest people. But at no stage in what it refers to as the project cycle does it actually take the time to ask the poor themselves how they perceive their needs. The poor are entirely left out of the decision-making process, almost as if they don't exist. Bank and fund policy is forged in meetings in lavish hotels between people who will never have to live a day in poverty in their lives. As Joseph Stiglitz argues in his own criticism of the bank and fund, Modern high-tech warfare is designed to remove physical contact. Dropping bombs from 50,000 feet ensures that one does not feel what one does. Modern economic management is similar. From one's luxury hotel, one can callously impose policies about which one would think twice if one knew the people whose lives one was destroying. Strikingly, bank and fund leaders are sometimes the very same people who drop the bombs. 
For example, Robert McNamara, probably the most transformative person in bank history, famous for massively expanding its lending and sinking poor countries into inescapable debt, was first the CEO of the Ford Corporation before becoming U.S. Defense Secretary, where he sent 500,000 American troops to fight in Vietnam. After leaving the bank, he went straight to the board of Royal Dutch Shell. A more recent World Bank head was Paul Wolfowitz, one of the key architects of the Iraq War. The development set makes its decisions far away from the populations who end up feeling the impact, and they hide the details behind mountains of paperwork, reports, and euphemistic jargon. Like the old British colonial office, the set conceals itself, quote, like a cuttlefish in a cloud of ink. The prolific and exhausting histories written by the set are hagiographies. The human experience is airbrushed out. A good example is a study called Balance of Payments Adjustment, 1945 to 1986, the IMF experience. This author had the tedious experience of reading the entire tome. Benefits from colonialism are entirely ignored. The personal stories and human experiences of the people who suffered under bank and fund policy are elided. Hardship is buried under countless charts and statistics. These studies, which dominate the discourse, read as if their main priority is to avoid offending bank or fund staff. Sure, the tone implies that perhaps mistakes were made here or there, but the intentions of the bank and fund are good. They are here to help. In one example from the aforementioned study, structural adjustment in Argentina in 1959 and 1960 is described as such, quote, While the measures had initially reduced the standard of living in a vast sector of the Argentine population, in relatively short time these measures had resulted in a favorable trade balance and balance of payments, an increase in foreign exchange reserves, a sharp reduction in the rate of increases in the cost of living, a stable exchange rate, and increased domestic and foreign investment. In layman's terms, sure, there was enormous impoverishment of the entire population, but hey, we got a better balance sheet, more savings for the regime, and more deals with multinational corporations. The euphemisms keep coming. Poor countries are constantly described as, quote, test cases. The lexicon and jargon and language of development economics is designed to hide what is actually happening, to mask the cruel reality with terms and process and theory, and to avoid stating the underlying mechanism, rich countries siphoning resources from poor countries and enjoying double standards that enrich their populations while impoverishing people elsewhere. The apotheosis of the bank and funds relationship with the developing world is their annual meeting in Washington, D.C., a grand festival on poverty in the richest country on earth. Over mountainous piles of beautifully prepared food, Hancock writes, huge volumes of business get done. Meanwhile, staggering displays of dominance and ostentation get smoothly blended with empty and meaningless rhetoric about the predicament of the poor. The 10,000 men and women attending, he writes, look extraordinarily unlikely to achieve their noble objectives. When not yawning or asleep at the plenary sessions, they are to be found enjoying a series of cocktail parties, lunches, 
Afternoon teas, dinners, and midnight snacks lavish enough to surfeit the greenest gourmand. The total cost of these 700 social events laid on for the delegates during a single week in 1989 was estimated at $10 million, a sum of money that might perhaps have better served the needs of the poor had it been spent in some other way. This was 33 years ago. One can only imagine the cost of these parties in today's dollars. In his book, The Fiat Standard, Seyfedin Amus has a different name for the development set, the misery industry. His description is worth quoting at length. When World Bank planning inevitably fails and debts cannot be repaid, the IMF comes in to shake down the deadbeat countries, pillage their resources, and take control of political institutions. It is a symbiotic relationship between the two parasitic organizations that generates a lot of work, income, and travel for the misery industry's workers, at the expense of the poor countries that have to pay for it all in loans. The more one reads about it, Amus writes, the more one realizes how catastrophic it has been to hand this class of powerful yet unaccountable bureaucrats an endless line of fiat credit and unleash them on the world's poor. This arrangement allows unelected foreigners with nothing at stake to control and centrally plan entire nations' economies. Indigenous populations are removed from their lands, private businesses are closed to protect monopoly rights, taxes are raised, and property is confiscated. Tax-free deals are provided to international corporations under the auspices of the international financial institutions, while local producers pay ever higher taxes and suffer from inflation to accommodate their government's fiscal incontinence. As part of the debt relief deals signed with the misery industry, he continues, governments were asked to sell off some of their most prized assets. This included government enterprises, but also national resources and entire swaths of land. The IMF would usually auction these to multinational corporations and negotiate with governments for them to be exempt from local taxes and laws. After decades of saturating the world with easy credit, the IFIs spent the 1980s acting as repo men. They went through the wreckage of third world countries devastated by their policies and sold whatever was valuable to multinational corporations, giving them protection from the law in the scrap heaps in which they operated. This reverse Robin Hood redistribution was the inevitable consequence of the dynamics created when these organizations were endowed with easy money. By ensuring the whole world stays on the U.S. dollar standard, Amus concludes, the IMF guarantees the U.S. can continue to operate its inflationary monetary policy and export its inflation globally. Only when one understands the grand larceny at the heart of the global monetary system can one understand the plight of developing countries? Part 10. White Elephants What Africa needs is to grow, grow out of debt. George Iotti All right, we're going to have to stop there today. I thought I was going to try to get, uh, I was going to be able to get another couple of sections out over the weekend, but it's been crazy. We're now out at a uh, Airbnb with the whole family and I finally got settled. We are doing our first, our big family Christmas. Um, so uh, Merry Christmas to everybody. Uh, Merry early Christmas. Um, uh, but uh, I'm going to have to close this one out and I'm going to have to save the guy's take. Um, and there's still so much left of this piece, actually, um, just because of how in-depth this is. 
um, that I'm going to just try to get through the rest of the read, and I'll probably just do a full-on guy's take at the end of this. So look for part four and maybe a part five, um, and I'll just get as much recording as I possibly can over the next few days to get this out for you guys because um, I've got so many other things planned. But uh, recording time is, is, is a thing. Is a is a scarce thing, almost as scarce as Bitcoin. But uh, thank you guys so much for listening. We will close this one out today. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss part four and the conclusion to this one and a number of other things. I want to do the entire Twitter files now that there's like five parts of that um, in one go. Uh, there's actually another really good Twitter thread that I found that I think is spot on and it's about... Um, it's actually from an Audionaut, a good friend, and uh, a Hector, and it's about how to, it's really short, but it's, uh, uh, it's about how to frame and how to think about getting other people to understand Bitcoin, is that, you know, to avoid lecturing and, and how it is that when people are talking or thinking or asking questions like what the mindset is and how you can actually get people to change their mindset about something they know they think they know something about um, and money is absolutely one of those topics but it's a really short thread but it's really great he actually sent me the link to it um so uh i will i think i'm gonna just do that might be more of a guy's take show just because it is such a short read but i want to cover that at some point um, in the mix. So trying to get as many episodes out as I can before Christmas. So you guys have something while you're traveling, uh, to go through. Um, but stay tuned. Don't forget to subscribe. Don't forget to check out Swan Bitcoin fold and the fold debit card for free sats for sats back on everything. And of course, CoinKite, the cold card, the tap signer, all the great hardware and security devices they have over there. Check them out. They're right there in the show notes in the description right there. And I'll catch you on the next episode of Bitcoin Audible. Until then, guys, take it easy. A government big enough to give you everything you want is strong enough to take everything you have. Thomas Jefferson. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.